I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we are many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, in proportion to our faith. Now let, me, let me pause there for a second, because I think a lot of people miss this line in proportion to our faith. Prophecy is proclaiming the message. It's not telling the future. Okay? If service in our serving, if one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortations, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. May God add His blessing to our reading of His Word today. As I shared last Sunday, the first two verses of chapter 12 are a transitional passage. These two verses affirm in a brief and somewhat general way that the foundation regarding our experience of grace that has been set forth in chapters 1 to 11 must, must, necessarily bring about profound changes in every aspect of our lives as believers. It's in view of God's mercies, Paul says, that he issues his ethical appeal. In fact, I shared with you how Paul proclaims that the very contemplation or the consideration of the mercies of God should compel us to offer up our bodies as living sacrifices to God. That the proper motivation for obedience and change is grace and gratitude, not fear. Leon Morris has wisely pointed out that by focusing on following rules and regulations and laws, in other words, legalism, legalism says, do these things and live. Grace, on the other hand, says, live and you'll do these things. I spent a little extra time last week pointing out how Paul's exhortation was simply stated. Be transformed. You and I need to both allow and to work diligently for a spiritual metamorphosis to take place in our lives. That's what that word transform comes from. Metamorpho, the Greek word. Metamorphosis. We need to be willing to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, which would have been heard as an oxymoron in that day. Because sacrifices are not living. They're slaughtered on the altar. 
You see, the call is to be changed into a life that is holy, sanctified, set apart, and therefore acceptable to God. In fact, Paul says this is your spiritual worship to be different. Years ago, I did a a sermon, and uh, you'll understand how many years ago if you recognize the song. But uh, I I built the sermon on the King James Version of Peter's words where he says, you know, we need to be fools for Christ. That different, a peculiar people, he says. Uh, And uh, I used the illustration that we as the church need to be like the clowns in a circus. Oh, they come out and they look funny, but you know what the real reason is for having clowns in a circus? That if something tragic happens, they can divert the attention of the audience. And uh, so I use that song, Send in the Clowns. Uh, That's how long ago it was. Uh, We need to be different. And I pointed out how those words that Paul chose were done very intently and intentionally, I mean. They're the language of worship, especially the Old Testament ritual worship seen in the expressions like present or offer, sacrifice, and the identification of our behavior as an act of spiritual worship. I also shared, though, more briefly Paul's explanation as to how this is to be accomplished. In addition to the command, do not be conformed to this world, Paul's explanatory phrase, which is also, by the way, a command in the original language, is that we are to be transformed by the renewal of our minds. And that's accomplished initially, I understand, by the regeneration of the Holy Spirit that takes place at our conversion, but also by our continuing instruction from the written Word of God. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, the Bible says. I've often said and often shared, we must be a people of the book. And as I shared last Sunday, Billy Graham strongly asserted that if you are ignorant of God's Word, If you don't know this book, you will always be ignorant of God's will. Paul's way of stating this importance, a result of this renewing, he says, is that it enables us to discern which moral choices are in conformity with the will of God. In other words, the way of life that is truly good, truly pleasing to God, and, by the way, truly fulfilling. I was talking with a doctor about how there have been studies that have shown the value of prayer done at a non-Christian university hospital. And by the way, Mark, your doctor said, absolutely, absolutely. Because I shared with him that this person who wrote that article years ago said that if doctors don't start telling their patients about the importance and the value of prayer, they could be held for malpractice. 
That's how strong that study was. A double-blind study. Some of the people didn't even know they were praying, being prayed for. And yet they got better at a quicker rate than those who weren't being prayed for. Now, in terms of the transition to the passage before us today, there is a link in Paul's general appeal that comes in verses 1 and 2 and his particular instruction that follows in verses 3 to 8. And it seems to be the place of our thinking, our mind, in terms of our Christian discipleship. But before I go to there and turn our focus to that, uh, I want us to look, I'm going to be talking about how God has gifted us for service, but I want to pause for a second um, and and use an image, uh, something that I think many of us are familiar with. Some of you think of it in terms of the manufacturer of one of the first one, and it, it gets referred to as a garment. Well, that was the manufacturer's name. Uh, These are actually what are known as GPS systems. Uh, Global positioning systems. Uh, It's a system that's known for being very accurate and not only locally but worldwide for knowing where you're at and how to get to where you're going. And so, not only does the GPS triangulate on where you're at, but now they develop programs to go along with it to give us those nice maps that we can get a route ahead of time uh, to get to where we want to go. And, let me tell you how accurate they are. When Jesse and I had our accident and we hit the cow, our car said, all emergency systems shutting down, 911 call activated. It shut itself off and we coasted to the side of the road. Then the dispatcher from 911 came on. I didn't even have to make the call. The dispatcher from 911 came on and he said to me, is anybody hurt? And I said, yes, my wife is. And he said, what's your location? I said, well, (coughs) we're on I-65, but I don't know exactly where. He said, no, no. You're at the 181 and a half mile marker. We just need to know whether you're northbound or southbound. Okay? Accuracy. Now, Keith never claimed he was the creator, but one of the former presidents at LCU, Keith Ray, used this idea to clarify how we can know God's will. He said that we should consider how God has G, gifted us, P, given us a particular passion, and S, how we are situated in a unique setting. And we can think in terms of these three ideas, gifts, passions, and setting, to make decisions as to what might be our best opportunity for serving. How's God gifted me? What do I really feel passionate about? What's my situation? When, when Cindy first came and started talking about the, the preschool, we had already had somebody about a year or so ago come and talk about it. And I said, yeah, yeah, you know, that is a passion of mine, but not that I want to be doing it. 
We'll come alongside. We'll come behind. We'll be there to support. Because all three of those are important. How has God gifted you? What are you really passionate about? And, and what's your setting? And sometimes two out of three works. For instance, I've said this before, I love my brother-in-law like he's my own brother, better than other, you know, I don't have any brothers, but I love him that much. And he has a passion for singing. And he's also in a setting, a little small rural country church that doesn't even have this many people, where they love to hear him sing. Now, he doesn't have the G part. He's not really that gifted. But he does okay, and he's got a passion, and he's in a setting for it. But when all three of those come together... We can really understand how God might be wanting us to use that gift for His service. John Stott, who I often quote, points out, however, that our renewed mind, which is capable of discerning and approving God's will, must also be active in evaluating ourselves, our identity and or our passions and our gifts. And he writes this, For we need to know who we are and to have an accurate, balanced, and above all, sober self-image. A renewed mind is a humble mind like Christ. Now I shared last Sunday how there is almost universal agreement that chapters 12 to 15 are Paul's application of the foundations that he's laid down in chapters 1 to 11. And today I want to point out how the formula that Paul uses to introduce his exhortation to sober Christian thinking is impressively solemn. In fact, it's what my deceased friend Jack Cottrell identified as having a mildly imperative ring to it. Paul states that the basis for his authority to instruct us, his authority for stating the specific nature of the transformed life, is stated in the first seven words of verse 3. For by the grace given to me. Now, it's important for us to realize that when he uses that word grace, he's not talking, he's not making a reference to salvation from sin. But he's making a reference to his apostleship. And so in terms of the meaning of the phrase, you can look at it as Paul saying, I, I say to you in my capacity as an apostle. Now, we need to also notice how the exhortation is directed to the entire church. I say to everyone among you. Now the implication for the subject of spiritual gifts is that every, every Christian has a gift or a special ability. Something that will help in the process of transformation. A gift of some kind that can be used to build up the church body as a whole. Peter emphasizes the same point. 1 Peter 4.10, he writes, As each of you has received a gift, use it to serve one another 
as good stewards of God's very grace. So don't even try to tell me, but I don't have any talents. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. God has gifted you. We have a spiritual GPS. God has gifted each other and every one of us in a unique and specific way. He's motivated us with passions and He also has us in unique settings in which you and possibly only you have the opportunity to serve one another to build up or as Paul says elsewhere to edify the church. So what is the message regarding gifts? Because I think that's very important also. And, I, and it's very blunt. Think. Think. Four times in verse 3, he uses a form of the same Greek word that is translated three times, think, and one time as judgment or sober thinking. We are to... We are not to think more highly than we ought to think, but to think with sober judgment or sober thinking. In other words, identifying the gifts that God has given calls for honest and impartial self-examination. Going back to verse 2 for a second. Paul's just indicated that the Christian life is transformed by the renewing of his mind. Now, he gives us an example of how the renewed mind must think. With think being the key word, as I said, four times in a short statement. So what's that word think mean? Well, it means to set our minds on. To have a specific opinion about or to have an attitude toward something. And though the words of himself actually don't appear in the Greek text, it's generally agreed that that is the emphasis Paul has, that every one of us as Christians must view ourselves, think about ourselves. The negative side of his command is an exhortation to humility. An exhortation not to have too exalted opinion of oneself. Not to overthink. The context shows that this applies especially to the subject of spiritual gifts. As Christians, we're not to overvalue our abilities, gifts, or even our worth, but make an accurate appraisal. One of the very first things that I did when I came here was I got a razor blade. Remember, Kay? I got a razor blade and I went out here and I finished cleaning off the name of the minister. And I did not replace it intentionally with my name. It is not about me. It is not about my abilities. It is about us as a congregation learning how to use all of our abilities together for the best opportunities for ministry that we can do. We are all ministers. We believe in the ministry of all believers. 
But the positive side, the positive part of the command is an exhortation to be sober-minded, to think clearly. And, and this is important because sober judgment not only excludes an exaggerated opinion of ourselves, but also warns us not to underestimate the abilities that God has given us. Sometimes a false modesty can be just as detrimental to the church as pride. Paul also states the standard to determine if our judgment is accurate. It's accurate when it is according to the measure of the faith that God has assigned. The, Paul, the point that Paul's making is that God's given to each one of us as Christians a measured ability that's appropriate to or that corresponds to our level of trust, allegiance, loyalty, so that we won't get ourselves in trouble. Maybe you've been there. I've had somebody start trying to teach me about something that the Bible says and because of their lack of deep study, they overestimate their abilities and in fact, they were using the Left Behind series as a source. I said, well, you need to go back and read the beginning of those books because both of the authors begin by saying that they are novels that are fictional. Fictional means made up. Okay? What's God's Word say? And that begins, brings me actually to my final point. You and I don't have the same gifts. They differ. And even if we have a same category of gift, our gifts differ in terms of levels. Now let me use an example. I can play a guitar. But I can't play anywhere near the level that Rob can play. I know that because he got a guitar one night when I was at his house and we sat side by side and I couldn't even sit there and play very well along with him. Now we tried. We made a joyful noise unto the Lord and shared. But even if we have the same category of gift, okay, I've worked hard to prepare myself to be a teacher. But there are men that I sit under that I humbly listen to. Because they are more gifted in the area of teaching than I. So, Paul's emphasis. His emphasis is on the unity that's to exist in the midst of this diversity. That each of us have gifts, but they are gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. And the main points of this verse are, one, each Christian has a gift. Two, these gifts are not the same. Three, each one's gift has been given to him by God. And four, one person's gift is no basis for feeling superior to anybody else because of their gift. 
And the analogy that Paul uses in verses 4 and 5 is one of his favorites. The analogy between the church and the body. It's also found, by the way, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and chapter 12. You can find it three times in Ephesians chapters 1, 4, and 5, and three times in Colossians chapters 1, 2, and 3. That says to me, it's important. <clears throat> and sometimes the point is the relationship between the body as such and the head, Jesus Christ. But other times it's the interrelations among the various members of the body, as it is here. Like the human body, the church has many members with different yet interdependent functions. We need to be different, and there needs to be a variety in our unity. We need hands, arms, feet, ears to hear, mouths to speak. And you know what I like to consider myself? I like to consider myself the wart on the little toe. <laughs> You know what the little toe is important for? One of my dad's fellow Navy men lost his little toe on ship and earned a lifetime disability and the funds to buy special shoes because the little toe is important for your balance. Stand still and pay attention and you'll realize how often you'll feel your weight on the knuckle of your little toe. And just think, if I'm here to help you maintain balance, how much more if I'm an irritating wart doing that? <laughs> you see, what determines the unity of the body is that we are in Christ. If you get cantankerous, it doesn't take you out of the body. It just means you're not in touch with the head, Christ Jesus. And no matter how many members there are in a local congregation, whether it's 15, 25, 500, or 5,000, and no matter how many Christians exist worldwide in the invisible church, we are all one body because we have the same Savior and Lord, Jesus Christ. At the same time, though, we are not an army of identical clones. Diversity, not uniformity, is the mark of God's handiwork. That's how F.F. F. Bruce put it. Now, in essence, and I need to hurry on, verses 6 to 8 identify seven diverse gifts. But it's not impaired, descriptive, it's imperative. With the word having beginning a new sentence, as it does in our ESV and NIV, the emphasis is on the variety of gifts, but what follows is a series of exhortations dependent on the imperative verbs that are there, urging us conscientiousness in the exercise of the gifts. In effect, Paul's telling us, whatever your gift, be satisfied with it and use it diligently. And the seven that he names, prophecy, service, teaching, exhorting, contributing, leading, and being merciful, they should only be considered as representative, not exhaustive. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. There are two lists. One has, the first one has nine, the second one has eight. In the short list in Ephesians 4, there are five. 
None of these are exhaustive. <clears throat> what they are is descriptive, but the imperative is how we are using them. What is important, first of all, is to note that the source of all of those gifts is God and His grace. If your gift is answering the phone, God bless you. I can't stand to talk on the phone. I had an African gray parrot one time that when the phone would ring, it would sound just like me. Yeah, yeah, uh-huh, okay, bye. I would much rather travel, even if it's hundreds of miles, to do face-to-face than, not talk, than to talk on a phone. And I will never text you about something that's important. Too many possibilities for people not to understand what you're emphasizing. Secondly, the purpose of the gifts isn't for personal gain. Not to pat yourself on the back, but it's related to the building up of the body of Christ. Ephesians 4 is probably the most explicit, but even in 1 Corinthians, in fact, he says that we should evaluate the gifts according to the degree in which they edify the church. And in fact, he says in 1 Corinthians, if you get up to prophesy and somebody else gets up, sit down, shut up, and let them have a turn. And if you're speaking in tongues and there's no one to interpret, by all means, shut up. We have a variety, thirdly, seemingly to be in a random selection. And gifts, all of the gifts mentioned, apart from prophecy, are either general or practical. Service, teaching, encouraging, leadership, and then even some are prosaic. Giving money, doing acts of mercy. So, in terms of a challenge. A challenge that we might take this passage with us. That it can raise, help raise our focus during the coming week. I believe that it is urgent. An urgent need of the church across the land. Probably around the world. To understand that regardless of who and how, the importance is on why we have been gifted. And it seems very clear that our gifts are the purpose for the purpose of building up and not tearing down. So in closing, I want to go back to that passage in 1 Corinthians 14, 12. The church was torn apart over the issue of speaking in tongues. And so Paul writes, so with yourselves. So with yourself. This is about you, the way you're doing since you're eager for the manifestation of the Spirit, which by the way, I usually don't disagree with the ESV, but the emphasis is really spirits. Spirits, a desire for the spirits. They were struggling with the paganism of the area around them and what was happening. Strive to excel in building up the church. See, with, with a little bit of mild sarcasm, Paul contrasts the eagerness 
of the wrong-headed tongue speakers what he at one point calls the least of the gifts, by the way. You go into some charismatic church, churches and you'd think that was the most important gift in the world. Paul calls it the least of the gifts. But he contrasts their eagerness with their true need to seek to excel in serving others. Listen to me, church. We need to make sure that all all that we do is for unity, not division. For building up the church and not tearing it down. Let's pray. Father God, we come before You today realizing that so often biggest temptation we face involves the struggles against me, myself, and I. Help us to realize that our call, the gifts you have given to us, the passions that you have given to motivate us, and the unique settings that each of us are in are there so that we can know how we can best use the talents and gifts we've been given to build up your church. We pray this. We pray that this is what will take place. And that we can reach out to some who have been disenfranchised by our behavior in the past. And that the kingdom can grow in this area by our love and our unity, not by our divisiveness. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You have a sheet of music. We're going to sing all four verses of this song today because it really tells us what is the foundation of our hope in Christ alone.
light of the world by darkness slain, then bursting forth in glorious day, up from the grave he rose again, and as he stands, given to us in our setting with all the passion you have bestowed on us so that we can be a part of building up the kingdom here locally. We pray this in your son Jesus name. And all God's people said Amen. Amen. Our closing song Because He Lives.
Oh, Leroy, you're not a mean friend. You're a My dad and I got a <laughs>